Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This is God's word. All right. How is everybody? Are we good? Awesome. I'm, I dropped my tablet before the first service and smashed it like Moses. <laughs> Saw the sin of the people. Hold on. All right, I'm getting here. All right, I'm there. So I'm getting little shards of glass in my finger. Awesome. It's the cross I bear. Um, hey, welcome to Watermark. My name is Tommy. Um, I'm continue, continuing uh, what we were sort of talking about last week. Each passage sort of builds off the previous one. And if you weren't here last week, I highly recommend you go listen to it because it'll help understand this one um, a lot better. Um, I'll do my best to sort of catch you up in as few words as I can, and then we'll get going with today. But first, I'm going to open up with a word of prayer. And uh, so let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for everything that you are doing for us. I ask right now that you would, you would calm us, that you would give us some peace, that you would uh, allow us to be here present, fully present, not distracted, fully present with you and with our brothers and sisters as we make up the body. <clears throat> I ask right now that as the body of Christ that we would open our ears and we would listen to your word. <clears throat> I ask that it would make its way uh, wherever it needs to go and that we would respond um, accordingly. That as we, as we focus on you, that we would look for areas of, of our life that don't match up with who you are. Um, and as we take communion this morning, I ask that you would allow the gospel to touch the parts of, of our lives that have not yet been touched by it, that we might be changed. Thank you. In your name, amen. Uh, before we get going, I do want to reiterate something that um, Jordan said earlier. We really need people to step up and help out in the children's ministry. Um, it's a madhouse back there, and we need more workers. Um, at this point, I'm assuming if you're not helping back there that you just hate children. <laughs> and we can talk about that. Um, but we need more help um, because we're, we're after, I believe after next week, going to be providing child care for both services. So you can imagine how insane that's going to be. Okay, so, I mean, it's going to be calm and fun. You should do it. Um, okay, so we're going to start here today. Uh, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Um, okay, so a little context. If you weren't here last week, then you would have missed on um, a bit of the conversation that we were having. There is a, about 18 or 20 verses in a row that had to do with um, sort of the spiritual discipline of submission because um, a lot of people were in oppressive situations. Um, at the very beginning, it, it, it lays it out that we're going to talk about submission in human 
creation, like in, in ordering of society, that, that as humans come together, as we order society, there will be oppressive times. How do we as citizens of the kingdom of God under him uh, interact with these systems? Uh, and the first one he talks about is governments, how to interact with government, even an oppressive government. Second thing he talks about is how to interact with assist, uh, oppressive sort of systems of uh, employment, like slavery. Um, and then he talks about oppressive forms of marriage. And we talked about the ancient Roman, uh, the first century Roman form of, of marriage, the, what they had was basically called patria potestas, where men owned women. The father owned a woman. When she would get married, he would sometimes pass ownership off to the husband. Uh, more often than not, he would retain ownership of that woman. Uh, women never went out on their own. They weren't allowed to. They were um, relegated to sort of the underworld of society. They, they were not allowed to venture out without their husbands or their fathers. They lived in these... Uh, apartments with other married women. Um, the slaves had more rights than women in these days. They were considered no different than your flock or your tools. Um, they were just things. And so Peter writes to these women who are living in this oppressive situations and they have come to Jesus and now they must go back to their homes where their husbands are the owners of them. And so... Um, we talked about what Peter has to say to all this and how we can actually institute change and how you can bring them to Christ and it can change the culture of your marriage. It can change the culture of everything. So uh, we talked about that. Um, So there's a conversation that would have been had that was going on. We have a lot of record of it in the Roman times of, um, well, if women can't go out and they can't have jobs, they can't be part of society, what are they to do? And men basically told them, you should spend your time adorning yourselves, making yourselves pretty, basically, for us. Um, and so there's a lot of discussions that we have. Uh, there's a man named Cato the Censor who was basically saying, um, arguing that women shouldn't be adorning themselves and dressing themselves all up and basically becoming um, eye candy uh, for the purpose of men to stare at. Um, and then uh, there's a man named Lucius Flavius who writes back to Cato, and he writes this, Why should men grudge women their or- their ornaments and their dress. Women cannot hold public offices or priesthoods or gain triumphs. They have no public occupations. What then can they do but devote their time to adornment and dress? Can you imagine how oppressive it would have been to be under a system like this? All you're good for is procreation and to look pretty. And that's it. Uh, And so in this period of time, um, Roman women came to start adorning themselves in these just crazy ways. All kinds of different ways of, of adorning yourselves. And up until this time, it hadn't really been like that in Roman in, in really in human society. Um, the Romans sort of gave this birth to something that still continues to this day of um, all of a focus on women being on their external beauty. And all of it being focused on external adornments. And dressing themselves up. And so, I mean, we could talk a lot about, uh, uh, you know, adornments in ancient, uh, in ancient Rome in, 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 this, in the society in which this was written in. Um, there was a quote that, that I found this week. It says that people used to say that there are as many ways of dressing the hair as there are bees in Hibla. And I was like, that, that's a weird way to put things. And I found out Hibla is apparently where the honey in Rome was made. Imagine there's a lot of bees. And so he says, there's as many ways for women to adorn their hair alone as there is bees in Hibla. Um, 
And, and so I, I researched some of this. There's, there's all kinds of ways. Women apparently would dye their hair all different colors back then, just like today. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, waved and dyed and sometimes black or red. And there were wigs. People made blonde wigs. The, the, the hair was brought in from apparently where Germany is now. Um, and there, uh, yeah, there's... Basically, we found, we found hairpins and headbands that were made of ivory or boxwood or tortoiseshell, sometimes of gold and studded with gems. Um, and that's just the head. We're just getting started. Um, there was apparently a favorite uh, rock was pearl, and women would wear three or four pearls in their ears. Um, in one year alone, there would be massive quantities of silk and pearls um, and scents and jewelry that were imported from places like India. Um, a pound of, like, the colors were really important, too. The purple was the most important color. A pound of, of purple thread that had been dyed thread of cotton, um, it would have cost more than three years' salary, a thousand denarii. Um, and there was apparently, apparently this cloak that, that everyone coveted, all the women coveted. It was called the Tyrian cloak, and it cost about twice that much. And so basically you're working for six years for a jacket. And they're like, yeah, it's good. Um, and so there's all sorts of similar imports from Arabia, uh, from, uh, you know, there was diamonds, emeralds, topazes, opals, all kinds of stuff. Um, as far as pearls being the most coveted rock, there was uh, Nero for one of his wives whom he loved. He actually had an entire room adorned with uh, pearls on the wall. The walls were basically made of pearls for her. And, uh, and there was, there's another man, um, his name was Caligula, and, and he, he ordered for his wife... Uh, her name was uh, Lolia Paulina, and she had a dress made entirely of pearls. Um, people had slippers, shoes made of pearls. It was a big deal. Uh, we, don't, we tend to not think that women back then would have as many things to dress up with as, as today, but it was actually way, way more. Um, and it was a huge deal. And this is pretty much how the women spent their day, adorning themselves. Um, and so you hear all this, and you think of all the riches and the opulence and how people would adorn their wives, and you tend to think, well, that maybe doesn't sound so bad. Uh, maybe they actually respected their women and they wanted to dress them up. Uh, maybe you've seen these TV shows on HBO or whatever where they, they, you know, they're basically shows about Rome, and there's women finely dressed who have a part to play in society and their characters in the story. These things are based on nothing. These women were shut in, basically. Um, they were given pretty things to wear, but women were not respected in the Roman Empire. Um, the facts are actually the complete opposite. Um, for instance, uh, when babies were born, there's places like China today that still practices this where, where they, they desire to have uh, boys as children because they can provide money for the family and things. And, and people wanted boys to be born in the Roman Empire. And so you would have one girl... Um, and after that, any other girls that you had, you would basically, they called it exposing. Um, back then, uh, they didn't believe children were people up until about a year of age. And they would take these babies, and they would mainly, almost all of them baby girls, and they would um, just abandon them, either at the garbage pile or at um, the middle of the town square. Um, and they called it exposing them. I exposed the baby. We always want to call it something other than what it is. And they would be 
either, they would either die of exposure to heat or cold or wild animals. Um, the ones who didn't die, who maybe survived for a couple of days, would be considered stronger and they'd be maybe picked up by slave traders and raised as, as slaves uh, or picked up by men who owned brothels and they would be raised as prostitutes. It was not a good place to be a woman. And so here's the thing. Uh, okay, so we've also, we found, in 1912, we found this bathhouse, this Roman bathhouse, in pretty much pristine condition. Um, and underneath this bathhouse, as we dug under there, we found a mass grave of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little baby girls. Unwanted, unnecessary, um, not useful for society, thrown out. And so... This is the context in which we are reading this passage. You have to remember this. Um, The Christians and the Jews wouldn't stand for this. Um, The Christians would regularly take trips down daily to the garbage heaps in the town squares, and they would look for the children, the little baby girls that had been thrown out. And they would take them home, and they would raise them to know that they were loved that they would never be abandoned by God, that Jesus would always be there, that they had meaning and purpose. There's a reason they were alive. They were not unwanted. They were very much wanted and loved. And this is fascinating. Within two or three centuries, about a second or third century of Christianity coming onto the scene, there were actually more Christian women in Rome than there were pagan. And there were more Christian women in Rome than there were men. And so you think about the previous passage where it it doesn't apply all that much today. We know when two people come together, they should have the same belief system when they get married. And so we read passages like last week's where it talks about a woman who is married to a man who is not a follower of Jesus. How can you speak with him and how can you um, maybe bring him to Jesus? And it would change the whole culture of your marriage. Um, Today, we don't read that passage much because A, we don't, we know not to do that. And B, we have a choice in who we marry. But when this was written, it was one of the most important things that could be said. So we know by the second or third century, again, there was far more Christian women than there was anything else. And if you read through church history, you will actually find that this became the primary way in which the gospel was spread. Women being married off to unmarried men and bringing them to Jesus. And this is fascinating. And this became one of God's primary tools for evangelism. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of women brought their husbands to Jesus. And society changed. And so, it is within this context that we come to passages like this. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Now, um, this is perfectly in tune with how God has always done things, is it not? God has always gone to the lowest rungs of society and chosen people from there. I mean, it's how we got King David. It's how we got countless prophets. It's how we got countless kings. It's how we got all of the disciples. They were all plucked from the very bottom, some of the most hated people, some of the most despised or rejected people. God has taken and said, I'm going to use you to complete my mission. He never goes to the top. He always goes to the bottom. And so he went to the women 
and basically says, here's what you need to know. Peter knows this. Peter writes this to them and says, you can change things. It's this empowering thing that they're hearing. And so he says, look, the adornment that you, you look out and you see all these women taking part in, in Rome, he writes to them and he says, he says, you know that's unnecessary. That is not what you are here for. That is what they have told you you are here for. That they've told you that's all you're good for. You know having grown up in the church or having come into the church from the outside and come to know Jesus, that it is no longer on the outside that we focus on. We focus on what is on the inside. And if you think about this, this is a perfect picture of the law versus the grace thing with Christianity and religion. Um, and, and, And here's what I mean. When your worth is found in what you do, looking pretty, having a part in society, when your worth is found in what you do or how you look, then you must make yourself more attractive. Always. But when you have been saved by grace alone, when you are a baby and there's nothing you can do to save yourself and you have been exposed and basically left to die, it takes grace. The only reason you were saved is because of grace. And the people of Jesus come and they pick you up and they tell you how important and loved that you are. This is all grace. You did nothing to deserve this. And when you have been saved by grace, you have, and you did nothing to deserve it, then, then you have no need of adornment. It doesn't change anyone's view of you. Whether you dress up, whether you dress down, no matter how you look, it does not change how God looks at you. It does not change how Christians should look at each other. It does not change how people in the church should ever interact with each other. In the church, there is no need for external adornments. It's actually just the opposite. What we need in the church is internal adornment and rejecting what the world tells us is beautiful and important. That's what all of this is about. And so you get to this passage, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, there's a couple of words here I want to look at. The word hearts is the word cardia. Um, we tend to think hearts as in the organ here that pumps blood, and that's what we talk about. Um, the words that were used to describe heart um, were words like cardia, where we get our word cardiovascular system. Uh, uh, there's another word that was used called splagnon. It referred to the gut. It referred, it's not a pretty word. It referred to the, I guess, the bowels, if you would. Um, and that's where they, you know, that's where you feel tension and butterflies in your stomach. And that's just where they talked about where your feelings come from. And so he says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the, of the heart, the place where your thoughts really come from, the place deep inside of you. And, and then uh, the next word is um, with the imperishable gentle of quiet spirit. The word imperishable is the word aftartos. Everyone say aftartos. Right on, we're awake. Uh, it means the things which do not decay when your body does. Your body is right now decaying. It is falling apart. You are right now dying. All right, don't want to bum you out, but that's what's happening right in this room. Um, And this will continue to happen, and all the things that you love about yourself that are beautiful will fall apart. But there is something deep down inside of you that is not taking part in that, is actually can can get better and more beautiful. Uh, It's as you get older, it becomes the main focus of who you are. as you get older and all of these things start to sort of wrinkle and and fall and just fall apart, and when you are dead and long gone, even after your body is dust, there is things about you that that will remain. 
your soul. And then there's the other things, the things that people will remember and talk about. And, and I think the best way to describe it is, is like this. Um, think about this. Tombstones never read like commercials. They never do. You'll never find a tombstone that says anything like, he had a full head of hair. He had really white teeth. They were just pearly and beautiful. Uh, his shoes were always, they were great choice, great choice of shoes. He knew how to pick a restaurant. Um, he could fix a car. And uh, tombstones don't focus on these external things. Or, you know, they never, they never say anything about her hair was just flowing. She had an hourglass figure. Um, you know, very supple skin. Very nice. Uh, tombstones are not going to say this. And, and here's the thing. If they do, and if people get up at your funeral and start saying these things about you, you were a bad person. <laughs> you were. That's all they could think of. All right? I love their car. Nice car. Um, so... There are things that we talk about at funerals where we get up in front of people and we say, they were there for me when I needed them. They were wise and they taught me things I needed to hear. Or they were encouragement when times were bad. They were just a good person, a kind-hearted person. They were gentle. They were good to people. They loved people. These are the things that we say. These are the things we put on tombstones. These are the things we write in obituaries and we say at funerals. Um, And this is how we all want to be remembered. And we all know being attractive and beautiful and being good are two different things. Because we all know some people who are really attractive and they're just bad people. And we all know people who are really good, but they're ugly I'll say it. Um, we all know these people. But we know, and, and we, we all admit, it's much more important to be good than to be attractive. We all know this, and we say this. I wonder if we believe it really deep down inside, because the fact is that we spend more time every day becoming more attractive than we do becoming good. We spend much more time working on our external appearance. Every mirror we walk by, we kind of stop and lean back to linger just for a second. God, it's in my head. I need to adjust this. And we keep moving. Um, And we spend so much time making sure we look presentable for everybody. And the time that we spend actually thinking about the goodness of God and how he is loving and kind and gracious and the amount of time we spend actually becoming like him and becoming good and contemplating these things is just zero compared to the amount of time we'll spend at the gym, at the store, um, looking in the mirror. And so the things that we say and the things that we believe don't line up. They're just missing each other. And so Peter has something else to say. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us in this day, but we're going to try to make sense of it. Um, in verse 5, he starts and he says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So he wants you to sort of harken back to a time of before and he wants you to picture Abraham and Sarah. There's something he wants you to think about. It's a certain time 
Uh, this is a very Jewish way of saying, um, go back and read this passage again and study it. Because um, he's referencing Abraham and Sarah, so we're going to go back to Genesis, obviously. Um, and it's going to talk about, apparently she called him Lord at one part, and so this is an rep- ancient way of referencing a certain passage, which we will now have to go find. So Abraham and Sarah, when did she call him Lord? And it's referencing Genesis 18. And when we open up this passage, um, we first have to gain some, some context here. There is, uh, Abraham is there. Abraham and Sarah are apparently very old. They have no children. They, uh, uh, there's a tent. Abraham is in the tent, and apparently God comes and visits Abraham in the tent. And they have a conversation. And Sarah is apparently, she snoops a lot. And uh, she's eavesdropping on the conversation that they're having. So she sneaks up to the back of the tent, and she's listening. And here's what is said. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. I mean, advanced in years. Just joking. Uh, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So um, a couple things I want to pinpoint here. Uh, actually, so she, she hears them talking. She hears that she's going to have a kid. She's, she's real old. Um, and she says, I, this is going to happen. She, it, the way of, it, the way, it words it very nicely. The way of women had ceased to be with her. So she couldn't have children. Um, and uh, he's very polite, the authors. Um, and, she says, and she says, after I am worn out. So she's talking about herself now. And she's laughing. This is hilarious to her. After I am worn out. So the word here for worn out is actually this ancient word which means uh, useless. I'm useless. Why would she be useless? Because the way of women had ceased to be with her. She couldn't have children. In ancient times, she would be considered useless. Notice this is the way of women. So she's no longer even considered a woman anymore. She is, has a terrible view of herself. She sees herself as probably the same way that these women who Peter's writing to would feel. I'm useless to... to to society, in my home, in the church, I'm important, in, in, in the home, in the world, I'm useless. They don't look at me the way God does. So she says this, I am worn out, I'm useless. And then she says something else here. And she says, and my Lord is old. So, or, so this is where the my Lord part come in, where we're supposed to reference. And then she says, shall I have pleasure? So we think of pleasure as carrying a baby, maybe, and, and just and being happy, enjoying, um, holding a baby in your arms that is yours, and kissing and hugging and all this stuff. Um, that's actually not what this word means. It is an ancient Hebrew word, which means it's, it's the word edna. It, it, it refers to sexual pleasure. She's basically saying, is he really going to turn me on? He hasn't touched me in a long time. We are old. Okay. Yeah, that's what it means. Um, and she's basically laughing at this, like by herself in her brain, laughing about finding pleasure in sex. This is, this is funny to her because she doesn't, she's like, I'm useless. Why would he ever want me in any way? I'm useless. I'm unattractive. And my husband doesn't want to sleep with me, is what she's saying. This woman feels useless and unnecessary 
unwanted. Everything that Peter's audience would feel, which is why Peter wants us to read this. Um, in her day, her culture would have considered her completely unattractive because what made women attractive in those days was your ability to bear children. Um, each culture invents their own, I guess, guide of beauty, their standards of beauty. Um, and I can prove this by opening up a yearbook from the 80s. <laughs> the women in those books thought they looked awesome. And we look at it and we're like, you look crazy. Your hair is like this, and it's like crimped, and it's feathered, it's crazy. Um, and, and so each generation kind of invents their own ideas of what beauty is, and this is what's happening here um, in her day, he, Peter references her because in her day she was considered not beautiful or important because of the society standards on her. And in the first century, Peter's audience didn't feel important, so they were trying to adorn themselves to make themselves attractive in the home. So I, I want to sort of liken this to trees. And I've made this illustration before. I think it's really important. We look at trees and we say, that tree is beautiful because it's a tree. Really beautiful. Who doesn't love trees? We love trees. Uh, now, so this tree is really super beautiful. And so any other tree now, I'm declaring, and we are going to agree that any tree that doesn't look like this tree is ugly. And the closer a tree looks to this tree, the more beautiful this, that, that tree will be. And the farther a tree looks from this tree, the more ugly it is. And we'll just agree upon this. And this is insane. But this is what we do with women. Every generation stands up and says, so this is the perfect woman. Here's what she should look like. And any woman that doesn't measure up to this woman is now considered less attractive. And the closer she looks to this woman, the more attractive she is. And the farther she looks from this woman, the more unattractive she is. And it's arbitrary. And it's made up. And it's crap. It's not, it doesn't make any sense when you think about it in reference to anything else in the world. Nothing. And yet, we perpetuate this over and over and over. But when we have conversations about God, we think, well, how does God view us? We have a really bad way of viewing each other. It makes no sense. It, it, it's just completely arbitrary and it's random decisions about who's beautiful and who's not. Um, let's look at what, how God responds when he hears Sarah talking about herself in the way that a lot of you women in this room, I imagine, have talked about yourself. He says, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, maybe you, maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't. This is not what she said. Is it? She had, some, she had some stuff about how unattractive she was and how sexually unattractive she was and how no one would ever want to sleep with her and how useless she was. And God didn't say any of that. He heard it. He didn't say it. Why? Because that's lying and lying is sin and God doesn't sin. And so God's not in the business of repeating your lies. And so the things that you say about yourself, God does not say about you. And the things that you say about yourself in the church, we should not be saying about ourselves. 
because it's not true in the eyes of God, and what is true in the eyes of God is what is ultimately true. So none of this is true. God would never look at her the way that she does. Any, any conversation about how God views us has to be seasoned with the phrase grace and peace. It is how the early Christians greeted each other, grace and peace. When we hear somebody speak about themselves in a way that says, I just feel a little too fat, or I don't feel right in this dress, I don't feel like it makes me look right, we instantly should interject and say, hey, grace and peace. You're not feeling at peace about the way that you look, and I want you to know that's not what this is about here. It's not what we are about. We were like that, but now we're followers of Jesus. And so we want you to be at peace. And the only way you can feel at peace is by saying grace, grace and peace. That's unnecessary adornment. Unnecessary. That is not what makes you important to us. That is not what makes you beautiful to us. Grace and peace. But I just feel so fat. Grace and peace. I'm just not smart enough. Grace and peace. Uh, I just, and you hear people talk about themselves this way. Do not let them talk about this way. I've had to look at my wife and say, do not talk about my wife like that. I had to look at my children and say, don't you ever talk about my children that way because it's not true. I would never speak about you that way. And I know the truth, that you are incredible. It's, it's kind of like, okay, so here we have old $20 bill. Why is this worth $20? Can anyone explain this to me? <laughs> we just decided it was worth $20. It's printed on material that basically is made from denim so you're all wearing like stacks of money right now because there's a lot of denim in this room. Um, there's a couple, even I, I saw some Canadian tuxedos, just head to toe. Um, but we've decided arbitrarily that $20 is worth $20. We agree. And the only reason this works is because we all kind of agree to it. This is the same thing. Gold, why is gold expensive? Is, is gold on it? of itself worth really anything. No, it's a really yellow and it's like bendy rock. That's all it is. It's not really intrinsically on itself worth anything. Pearls were created in the mouth of a clam because a piece of sand was annoying them. (laughs) They're not intrinsically worth anything. None of these things that we say are worth things, none of them are worth anything. We just arbitrarily make it up and agree to it. It's the same thing with beauty. We arbitrarily agree this is going to be beautiful for the next 10 years or like six months. And we are arbitrarily going to agree later on that it's not beautiful anymore. It has no basis. It has no weight. It has no truth in it whatsoever. It's all completely made up. So what if we decided that we were going to change what is beautiful? What if we decided that the things in the heart are going to be what determine the things we say at your funeral should be the things that we that determine whether or not you are beautiful. We can do this. We do this about everything else. We can do this about beauty. We can actually look at each other and say, "You are beautiful because you are made in the image of God." And there's nothing that you could do to make yourself more attractive and more beautiful to God or any of us than you are right now. This can happen. It can start in the church and it can change things. We don't have to buy into the standards that they are pushing down your throat. It doesn't have to be like this. Ladies in here who are moms, think about your children. When they look at you, you maybe talk about your arms. Oh, my arms are so flabby. And you wrap them around your kid. Your kid's never going to say, yeah, mom, get, get away. Your arms are flabby. Don't wrap those around me. 
They're not going to do this. Why? Because your arms pick them up and comfort them, hold them, and love them. Your hands that you're afraid are getting wrinkly and veiny or what I don't know what you worry about. Um, they're, they don't want you to, they don't, they don't love your hands because you have a French manicure. Like, they love your hands because you put, you put a band-aid on them and you hug them. Uh, they, they don't love your face because it's done up and less wrinkly because there's Botox in it now. They love your face because it kisses them and it's the first thing they ever saw in this world. And, and they don't, your children would never look at you and say, Mom, you're ugly. Yet you talk about yourself this way and your kids, you let them hear that. You are lying to them. It's, it's not true. I mean, Jesus, I always think of this because in, in, there's this part where Jesus says, bring all the kids to me. And he says this, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for, of, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And every time I think about how right children are, I remember this. And I remember this is a little piece that children get right about the kingdom of heaven that one day we will all think this way. Children already do. And the only reason they stop thinking that way is because of you and me. We teach that to them. Think about Philippians 2.7. Talking about Jesus and it says, He made himself of no reputation. No reputation. Jesus who? That's what that means. Like, I, it's not a good reputation. It's not a bad reputation. It's not just, it's nothing. I'm focused on other people. And this is how the Savior of the world conducted himself. And we spend so much time on our reputation. He took on the form of a servant. He actually lowered himself and was made in the likeness of men. We are wrong a lot. We are wrong on this. Women, the adornment, the pressure that everyone's putting on you to adorn yourselves is unnecessary. We all know you do it more for each other than for men. And so look at each other and cut it out. Encourage each other in the ways of simplicity. Encourage each other to focus on your goodness and bring that out far more than your attractiveness. Be confident in who you are in Jesus because men will tell you that is incredibly attractive. And don't adorn yourselves to get other people to look at you in a way that is ungodly. Attract them to your eyes and your mind and your soul. And so I don't know what all of this means. I guess there's a million different ways you could go with this, but that's that. And so we're going to take a time of communion. And uh, I, I want you to think of all of us, of our outward adornment. Men, women, all of us. Um, and maybe we should follow Jesus' example, make ourselves really of no reputation. We should spend more time on our sanctification than we do on our attraction. And so as our communion servers are preparing... Um, we're going to spend some time in prayer. If you're a follower of Jesus, I would love for you to take communion with us. If you're not, I would ask that you just kind of observe and, and think about what we're doing, but don't take part in it. It's very sacred. Um, and, and here's what's great about communion. This is great. Um, when Jesus died on the cross, which is what we're remembering, he took all of your unattractiveness, your sin, the things that made you unattractive to him, he took that upon himself. And scriptures say, he covered you in his goodness and holiness and beauty. He, it says he covered you. So when the Father, God the Father, looks at you, 
He sees Jesus on the outside even. He sees Jesus. And God had to turn his face from his son because he looked like you. The way God sees, just you covered in sin. He was covered in your sin. And God took that away. And when God looks at you now, he sees perfection. And I hope we can somehow gain some self-esteem in that area. And so as we go to communion, think about these things and pray about these things. And maybe we need to spend some time in repentance about our view of ourselves and others. And spend time saying, hey, grace and peace. Don't say that. Grace and peace. There's no reason for that. It's unnecessary. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. You are holy. You are good. You are wonderful. Your beauty is indescribable and, and you have chosen to bestow that beauty upon us and we thank you. May we be humbled in your presence. May we take the gospel down inside of us because that is what matters. As we take communion, may the gospel go down deep inside of us and touch the places it has yet to touch. We love you. Thank you. In your name, amen.